Welcome back to the program. In the private sector, when corporations get into trouble, they replace the CEO. When sports teams repeatedly have a losing season, invariably they replace the coach. If sales are down, managers are replaced. Yet in the military, it's very rare the generals are replaced, even in the wake of catastrophic failure. Our guest, esteemed military journalist Tom Ricks, argues that failures in America's recent wars can be directly traced to those failures of command. Ricks examines U.S. military leadership from World War II to the present day and concludes that the mistakes in Iraq and Afghanistan can be traced to the Army's inability to come to terms with all the lessons of Vietnam and further how a lack of accountability has shaped the modern military. Thomas Ricks is a fellow at the Center for New American Security, a contributing editor to Foreign Policy magazine, He writes the blog, The Best Defense. He's been a member of two Pulitzer Prize winning teams for national reporting and has covered U.S. military activities throughout the world. It is my pleasure to welcome Tom Ricks back to this program to talk about the generals, American military command from World War II to today. Tom Ricks, thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. In many ways, it seems that being a general in today's military is a little bit like having tenure at a university. Unless you do something that totally embarrasses the institution, you seem pretty well protected. That's right. Basically, um, if you keep your pants on um, and and don't go around boffing the undergraduates, you you can be mediocre in your job, but you'll keep it. It wasn't always that way for for our generals. In fact, you say that the way it is now, that a private who loses his rifle is punished more than a general who loses the war. Yeah, and that's a real change in American military history. The military tends to say, oh, Tom Ricks, he's a wild-eyed reformer. Uh, Actually, my view is I'm a traditionalist. And when we change a military tradition, we should ask why we're changing it. And one of our greatest military traditions was removing generals who failed. This happens in the Revolutionary War a lot, in the Civil War, uh, in World War I. And what was really striking to me was even in World War II, a massive global war, exceedingly complex, uh, that General George Marshall, who ran the army throughout World War II, uh, basically gave his generals about 30 days, maybe two months, to succeed in combat, to get killed or wounded, or to be fired. And so he fired a bunch. There were 165 men who commanded divisions, army divisions, in combat in World War II. Of those 165, 16 were fired. And the other side of the coin with respect to Marshall, as you talk about it, was his willingness to reach down into the ranks to bring up and promote those that he thought were promising and that had particularly unique skill sets. Well, this is what you happens. When you do fire people, when you reward success and punish failure, you create openings. Also, you show people what success looks like. If people say, oh, I want to be more like that guy Eisenhower, he's getting promoted, then I want to be like that guy Fredendahl who got fired for a series of failures. And so it really helps shape the institution very quickly. But in addition, Marshall pays attention to the characteristics of an individual. Uh, he doesn't just look at people as interchangeable parts, who's the most senior guy to put into the next job. So he looks around. He knows World War II is coming. He knows they're going to be fighting overseas. That means you have to work closely with allies. That means you want somebody who can coordinate and be conciliatory with allies, yet also can show some steel in his will and represent American interests. 
and he settles on this lieutenant colonel named David Eisenhower in the late 1930s, doesn't know him well, tries him out in a series of tasks and says, this is the guy who I want to be my supreme commander, which is not the natural choice. The natural choice would have been one of the older generals, a guy like, say, George Patton. Now, Patton was half insane, a great field commander, but exactly what you would want not, not want to have coordinating with allies in London. If we put Patton in London and Eisenhower's <laughs> job, we probably would have been at war with the British by 1944. One of the things you talk about is that we don't incentivize success, particularly when we look at our military efforts post-World War II. Is part of the problem that it has been harder to define success, that, that those at the very top have had a harder time of defining what success is supposed to be? Yes, that is part of it. These, in these small, murky wars, um, when, when you're fighting among civilians and stuff, it is more difficult to know what success looks like than it was. You know, in World War II, success is we get to Berlin and we go home. We flatten Germany, and that's it. Pretty, pretty clear. Uh, but even so, uh, one reason in the book that I focused on two examples was that each of them showed what success looks like in a small war. The first example was Matthew Ridgway in Korea. The second example was David Petraeus in Iraq. Very similar men who go into a very messy, troubled war and start doing things very differently and surprisingly quickly are able to turn things around. One of the things you talk about is this idea that, for example, in 2006, Bush is forced to turn away from the generals, and that's kind of how Petraeus winds up in there in the first place. It's partly because we have a generation of generals who really don't know how to talk to presidents. They think you want to sort of be buddies with them, go visit them on their ranch, hang out with them. Uh, and this is another reason I'd like to go back to George Marshall. George Marshall did not see the president as his buddy. He saw the president as his boss and, and someone who it was his duty to speak truth to. And Marshall had a habit throughout his life of speaking truth to power going back to World War One, So he actually came to President Roosevelt's attention. He was a young brigadier general. He was in the Oval Office. And Roosevelt, rather airily at the end of a meeting, sort of waved his hand in the air and said, isn't that right, George? And Marshall made two things clear. Number one, his first name was not George. It was General. He thought that calling him George misrepresented the relationship. Second, he said, no, Mr. President, I think you're wrong, and here's why. And everybody was kind of stunned. This brigadier general, a one-star general, standing up to the president. And that got Roosevelt's attention. And so Roosevelt actually decided to make him the Army Chief of Staff when there were other people who were more senior and more likely candidates. Marshall becomes Chief of Staff. 1939, he's sitting in the Oval Office again, and Roosevelt again does something like, I'm sure you agree, General Marshall. And Marshall says, no, I don't, and here's why. And he lays out his concerns. And he actually ends up saying, if you don't do something today, Mr. President, I don't know what's going to happen to the world. And in that meeting, he begins turning around Roosevelt in war preparation, saying, we're going to be involved in this one, one way or another, and we need to get ready. And he gets Roosevelt to really commit to, to improving the U.S. military. Marshall takes the army from about 100, 180,000 people at 38 to 9 million people, Six years later. Going back to Korea and more specifically Vietnam, how has this lack of meritocracy 
impacted soldiers down the line? How has this lack of, of real attention to leadership impacted those under the, under the command of, of the various generals? One thing to watch out for is whenever the Army talks about being fair to officers, that means it's not being fair to its soldiers. Fairness has nothing to do with officers. Uh, a soldier is entitled to be led by a good officer. We didn't do that in Vietnam. We put guys, soldiers, out in frontline combat units for a year, yet we gave them leaders for only six months and then rotated that lieutenant or captain to a staff job. Well, we know, statistically speaking, that an inexperienced commander will get more of the soldiers killed than an experienced one will. Uh, so we actually got soldiers killed through our personnel policies in Vietnam. And a lot of those young green commanders got killed. So in my research, I came across, for example, one infantry company in the Army in Vietnam that had seven commanders in one year. You barely learn the guy's name. He doesn't know all the names of the soldiers before he gets killed. That's no way to, to, run, to run a unit. Uh, so you want to look at success, reward those guys, promote them, and remove the failures. It sounds simple but it became very hard for the Army to do it, especially when we had this policy of rotating people, because it becomes so much easier, oh, let's not fire him and ruin his career, and he's going to be gone in a month anyways. Or let's just move him to a quiet place or put him in a, in a rear position. Um, let's, not, let's not ruin his career. No, we, we, if you want to support your soldiers and protect your soldiers, you want to be very hard on their officers. When we look at the failures in Vietnam and the failures in Iraq, can we see a direct line in the ways that better generals, different generals, would have made a difference? Yeah, there's actually some interesting case examples, partly because General Sanchez, our second commander in Iraq, was such a weak leader that we basically fought a bunch of different wars in different parts of the country. Uh, division commanders essentially made their own rules and their own strategy. And so you have this great example up north. General Petraeus goes into a difficult area, Mosul, right on the fault line between the Kurds and the, and the Arabs, uh, loaded with former Iraqi military officers, trained in military operations. And he keeps Mosul pretty quiet. He cuts deals with the bad guys. Um, he basically says, I am here to stabilize but change things here are the basic rules. If you obey them, we'll get along. In the rest of the country, a lot of other commanders take a much more violent approach, which is there's a new sheriff in town, shut up and do things my way. And Petraeus is more successful than they are. And the actions of American commanders in many other parts of the country inflame the insurgency. And ultimately, the biggest single recruiting poster for the insurgency becomes the mistreatment of prisoners in the Abu Ghraib prison. Uh, I've talked to American officers who interviewed insurgents who say the reason I joined the insurgency was the Abu Ghraib abuse scandal. Hmm. Uh, one guy I remember said, since I became an insurgent, a bomb planter, I have planted 150 bombs in, in a row and exploded them against Americans. So there you have American troops killed in response to the Abu Ghraib mess. And so it was a major problem, and it was rather than dealt with, Rather than people being removed, he was kind of swept under the rug and blamed on a bunch of Army reservists. 
One of the things you talk about is the way that General William DePew helped rebuild the Army after Vietnam through the 70s. Why weren't some of these kinds of issues addressed at that time? DePew, I admire enormously. His, his rebuilding of the Army in the 1970s and early 80s was magnificent. That said, it was also insufficient. He was so focused on rebuilding the tactical army that he swept aside questions of higher levels of operations, of, of how do you fight, why, and why do you fight. And he actually has a big fight with one of his commanders who says, soldiers need to know how, how to fight, but the officers also need to know why we're fighting in order to shape the battle towards certain outcomes. DePew rejects that notion. And so we really end up with a generation of officers who know how to fight, who are trained to fight, but are not educated to fight. And the difference is training prepares you for knowing task. How do I fight a, uh, a tank battle? How do I use a machine gun? Education prepares you for unknown task. How do I go into a, into a difficult, chaotic situation, sort out the reality of what's going on, sort out the facts from the falsehoods, figure out which facts are important, and then to resign a response. That basically is critical thinking. And we had a lot of generals um, who didn't know how to think critically, who thought of themselves as basically heavy equipment operators. And so when they were faced with a chaotic, difficult, murky situation in Iraq and in Afghanistan, they didn't know what to do. They kept on doing what their manuals had trained them to do because they didn't know anything else to do. Petraeus happened to be a smart guy who had studied a lot, got himself a Ph.D. at Princeton, and was able to think differently. But we don't have a lot of generals capable of thinking differently. One of the other things you talk about is, is the overall attitude, the idea that in the eyes of many for a long time, it was seen that the firing of generals and the firing of leaders was seen as a sign that the system was working well. At some point, it became a sign in, in the eyes of some as a sign of institutional failure. Yeah, Marshall expected that not everybody would succeed. The, the army's not Lake Wobegon, and not everybody, everybody's above average. I think it's a little bit easier, though, in a big war like World War II, where there really is a national consensus supporting it, than it is in smaller, murky, and popular wars. When Ridgeway goes into Korea, in 1950, he decides pretty, pretty early on, he, he said, I've got six division commanders and I'm going to fire five of them. And the Army back at the Pentagon kind of, kind of goes nuts. And one of the fun things about doing the research in the military archives is you can see these cables going back and forth. With Ridgeway says, I'm getting rid of half the regimental commanders and five of the six division commanders. And the Army writes back to him, like, hold on there. That's a real problem. We've already told... Uh, Congress, that we're going to rotate some guys out, so you've got to go along with that lie. Uh, we're going to pretend that nothing's happening here. Um, it's because it's an unpopular war, because they don't want Congress asking questions. But I think it was the wrong approach. To, to, they, I think they should have been more honest. I think ultimately the American people would have supported the war longer had they been treated more honestly. Another area where we seem to have fooled ourselves was with respect to the 1991 Gulf War, where we have this impression still that parts of it and that part of the leadership went well, and in fact, the end of it was a supreme failure. Yeah, I think something we were so happy to see our military do well and not go like Vietnam, that we ignored that the way we ended the war was really a very botched, messy ending. We know now from the tapes of Saddam Hussein's cabinet meetings that we captured after the invasion, 
that Saddam Hussein thought he won that war. And look at it from his perspective. He said, the Americans are chasing my troops, they're killing them all in Kuwait, and then they stop. And as he says in a, in a cabinet meeting at the time, he said, I don't know why they're stopping, but they seem to be giving us the truth. And frankly, I'll take it. And from his perspective, from the Arab perspective, this was a victory, which is, I'm the first Arab leader to have taken on the West. I took on the Americans, the British, the French, and their local Saudi Arabian allies, and I'm alive. Hey, that's a big thing in the Arab world. I took, I took on the bad guys, and I won. And so he thought he had won a victory. And that shaped his response for the next 10 years. One of the other misconceptions that we often fall into, and you talk about this, is the idea that in the effort to be supportive of the troops, we sometimes also wind up supporting bad leadership. I think it's partly because we don't know as a nation how to think about the military anymore. We have fewer veterans in positions of power in this country. In the Congress, there are far fewer people who understand the military. As late as the Vietnam War, two-thirds of the members of Congress were veterans. Today, two-thirds of the members of Congress are not veterans. And so there's kind of a fear of being made to look foolish, getting into stuff you really don't understand. Um, and so Congress doesn't really deal with military affairs in the way it used to. It doesn't get involved. The presidency, especially a Democratic president, there's no upside in getting in a fight with the military. And this has bad consequences. So, for example, I wrote a piece recently for the Washington Post saying after Vietnam, the U.S. military did some real sober soul-searching about its failures. The most famous is a study they did in 1970 on the state of the professionalism of the Army Officer Corps, which it found very poor. No such studies like that are being done nowadays, asking the really big questions. Which sorts of units tortured people and why? How can we prevent torture from happening in the future? Because torture happened in a lot of places. It wasn't just Abu Ghraib. And it's important also if you're taking care of your troops and taking care of your veterans because torture has two victims, the person who suffers it but also the person who inflicts it. Uh, that's one example of the type of issue that's not being studied. Another is why were our generals so poor at giving advice to civilian leaders? Why didn't they tell them the hard facts? Why did they insist on serious discussion of differences? That's how you make strategy. You examine differences. Why do we have this difference? What does it mean? And you pour into it. You don't paper it over. And we're not doing that sort of thing nowadays, and so that is bad for our military going down the road. I would say one reason that the military and the White House have had such a difficult time discussing Iraq is the bad precedence of, of sorry, difficult time discussing Syria, and what, what, if anything, to do there, is that they never really established these modes of conversation in their policy discussions on Iraq and Afghanistan. So we really need to repair civil-military discourse and measure it by its intensity and the clarity and the candor and the trust in that discussion. How much of that falls on, on the doorstep of the civilian leadership of the Pentagon? It's, it is very much a two-way street. Uh, it is civil and military dialogue. But you've got to play with the hand that's dealt you. And our generals, we know who our generals will be 10 years from now. They're the majors, lieutenant colonels, and colonels of today. We don't know who our presidential leaders will be 
uh, people in the White House. So we can educate our generals more than we can educate our civilians. And it becomes the job of those generals to go to the White House and lay out, sir, here are the facts of the case. Respectfully, here's where we think you might be wrong or ignoring something. And then when the decision is made, to salute smartly and execute the orders given them. And if they can't execute, to retire quietly. And or, as you talk about, there was a time when it was not necessarily a black mark to be reassigned. No, and it was not a black mark to disagree with the president. Um, A smart president like Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, self-confident, manipulative, knew that if he, 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 he was a world-class BS artist, he needed somebody to tell him to throw the BS flag sometimes. Uh, you know, I wish during the Vietnam War we had generals who would say, Mr. Johnson, you are wrong, and here's why. And if he, if he curses them and yells at them and kicks them out of his office, as he did with his, his joint chiefs, uh, that's when they say, sir, uh, you clearly have lost your confidence in us, and we're resigning. Uh, and, and they leave quietly. Uh, that's what I think George Marshall would have done with President Johnson. He would have said, sir, it's time for me to go. You need somebody else in this job. Yeah, I would love to print up bumper stickers that said WWGMD, what would George Marshall do, and give them to every Army general. Because it's a pretty good answer. Uh, if you can figure out what George Marshall would have done, that's a pretty good instruction, General, on what you should be doing. And certainly on a much grander scale, as you point out, that after Pearl Harbor, after the failures that led to Pearl Harbor, people were fired. After 9-11, nobody was fired. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a problem in accountability generally in our society. I think it's one reason the Harvard Business Review, to my surprise, picked up part of my book and ran it the Harvard Business Review. The issue of accountability in our society uh, is a troubled one. Why aren't there consequences for mistakes and bad behavior? Uh, I think I would extend this even to Obamacare. Here we've had this fiasco in which the central domestic part of President Obama's uh, administration has been really messy, yet no one gets fired. I mean, there should be consequences for adults when they screw up. What is it, in your view, finally, in the culture that has created that environment? In many ways, for a long time, the military was immune from that. And obviously, as we've talked about since Vietnam, that's not been the case. What's happened? I suspect it has to do with bureaucratization. Uh, I suspect it has to do with also the Army becoming more and more like a union or a trade guild and less and less like a hierarchical institution. Uh, the lack of a sense of duty to the institution and the more a sense of looking out for your friends. Uh, one thing I also was impressed by George Marshall, he didn't just didn't fire people he didn't like, he fired some of his closest friends. Uh, for him, it was just too damn important. And the obligation of the, soul of the officer to his country is so important. You can't let friendship get in the way. And I think these days we've kind of gotten murky about this, sort of a feel-good era. We don't want people to be mad at us. Uh, Marshall didn't care what people thought of him. Um, he, he, you know, he, he wanted to be able to look himself in the mirror in the morning and say, did I do my duty? Am I clear with my conscience? And he was very, very conscious that his job was to make sure that the soldier was taken care of, not the officer. 
Thomas Ricks. The book is The Generals, American Military Command from World War II to Today. It is just out in paperback. Tom, it is always a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us. You're welcome. I really enjoyed it. Good interview. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 